You're listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. Intercom, making internet business personal at scale. Learn more at intercom.com. I'm Adam Rissman, Content Marketing Manager at Intercom. Welcome to the Inside Intercom podcast, a show all about learning how to build better products and businesses through conversations with leaders in the worlds of design, product management, startups, marketing, and more. As we approach the end of the year, we've been spending a lot of time thinking about how to keep products alive. Ultimately, when and where your users want to interact with your product will always change. Hugh Durkin, our guest for today's episode and a senior product manager at Intercom, spends a lot of his time strategizing on how to meet your audience there. Following a few years over at Facebook, Hugh now looks after the Intercom platform and developer program, which includes integrations with Slack, Facebook, Fullstory, Wootrick, and more. His latest post on our Inside Intercom blog, titled Browsers, Not Apps, or the Future of Mobile, is a must-read for anyone whose work directly or indirectly relates to building software. It jumpstarted a good deal of conversation and debate across the likes of Twitter and Hacker News, so our managing editor, John Collins, sat down with you to find out why product builders should care whether apps or browsers went out. What we're going now for mobile is through the cycle of um, like imminent 5G. You know, we have Wi-Fi all over the place. So those things that we used to do, like in native apps, or we needed native apps for, we can increasingly just do over the internet because we're connected. So it's, it's followed the exact same technology cycle and path as like desktop computing. Why the applications matter for B2B and B2C products. We actually have share a lot of the same jobs across our personal lives and our work lives. Like even if you look at like Dropbox, the reason that Dropbox scaled as a tool is they give it away for free first. So people use it in their personal lives and then they, it kind of creeped into the enterprise. So I don't think there's, there's much of a, a big difference across both of those worlds. I think the jobs are still the same. Which shopping centers of all things can teach us about building software platforms. The company that became Target Corporation moved from being like a small department store to actually being a landlord and opening up shopping malls in the US all over the place. And it just changed the dynamics of their business and it changed how they scale. So they basically shared the risk with a bunch of other people. You know, when they're moving into new markets, they partnered up with local retailers. So if you compare that story and how they changed to like Facebook before they launched Facebook platform, by letting other people in and like sharing the success and sharing the risk, everyone kind of grew, you know, so it's typical like normal platform dynamics. It's a chat all about growing your product and its audience. So with that, let's hop into the studio with John and Hugh. So, Hugh, welcome to the show. One of the reasons we wanted you on was that you wrote a post recently for the blog, Browsers Not Apps for the Future of Mobile, and that really, really took off and generated a lot of debate. So, as a product builder, why should I care whether apps or browsers win out? Like, what are the implications of that? Yeah, like, as a product builder, we should care a lot. I think if you're a consumer, you don't really care at all. You don't even notice these things. But the biggest reason why you should care is I think it's good to understand, like, technology cycles and kind of where we are in them. And we often like forget about what's happened in the past, and we should we should never forget a lot of things that happened in the past. So the whole browser versus apps thing, I think it's it's rooted in the history of the internet, and I suppose the way the world used to be in like the '90s when I started using computers. So again, like the thing that we forget is that in 1996, like if you wanted to find out who was the president of the United States in the '70s or something like that, you would probably boot up your computer, you'd probably open up Microsoft Encarta that was installed on your computer. And that's where you'd find that information. If you wanted to do your accounts, you would probably, again, boot up your computer, open up SageLine 50, install it in your computer, uh, and that's how you do your accounting. And, you know, same thing for email as well. If you wanted to write an email, you'd, you know, do it in Outlook Express in offline mode in this software that was installed in your computer, dial up, and then you send it. And that's very different from today where, like, if you want to find anything about anyone, you look up Wikipedia. 
if you want to do your accounting, you use like something like Xero. And if you want to write email, you use Gmail. And the difference between those things is they're all through the browser, like over the internet. And the thing that's changed basically in between is connectivity. So like in the 1990s, we had dial-up, not even very good dial-up. And we, we spent most of our time in offline mode. So we had to use these locally installed pieces of software to like do anything with our computers. And if you kind of fast forward to like 2007 when the iPhone came out, the same is true. We had 2G, connectivity was really patchy. And initially, actually, when the iPhone launched, a lot of people forget this, Steve Jobs basically said he didn't want native apps. He wanted web apps, HTML5, all that kind of stuff. But they kind of had to relent because they had this connectivity problem. And what we're going now for mobile is through the cycle of um, like imminent 5G. You know, we have Wi-Fi all over the place. So those things that we used to do, like in native apps, or we needed native apps for, we can increasingly just do over the internet because we're connected. So it's, it's followed the exact same technology cycle and path as like desktop computing. It's interesting. One of my my teenage kid looked at me the other night and said, "What did you do on computers before you had the internet?" <laughs> so yeah, like it, it's it's funny how quickly people have become adapted to that. Yeah. I mean, but your definition of browser, I suppose, is pretty broad. I mean, you're you're very much thinking of like the full gamut of things now that like effectively are browsers, but they're not, you know, Safari or Chrome. Yeah. Like again, like we 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 constantly forget everything, including where we spend our time. So like again, like back in the nineties, um, like the definition of a browser was this thing that you opened up if you were dialed up to the internet, and you'd go into it. You would use a search bar to like type in a URL or a web address, uh, or you'd like search in Alta Vista or Lycos or one of those kind of things. And it was all about like this experience of pulling content to you. You had to go and discover it yourself, and it was all just about finding information in different ways. On a mobile, we spend like so many hours in messengers on Facebook. And we're kind of just discovering information that's relevant to us based on like friend recommendations, all that kind of stuff. But it's still browsing, right? Most of the things we share, like we don't share apps, we share URLs, you know, so it's still browsing the internet, but it's just a different way of doing it. It's more like push versus pull. And even like if you look at Facebook, especially on iOS, when you open one of those URLs, it has like the web address, like bar at the top. It's got back buttons, all that kind of stuff that a traditional browser would have had. So those really are just like a new type of browser. And I think even for traditional browsers on desktop, we'll probably see them merge more where they might even in the future have more like messaging functionality built into them as well. They're kind of merging those two concepts. And I suppose like at work, Slack is kind of a, the browser that a lot of us are using a lot of the time as well. Yeah, same kind of thing. Like again, back in the day, if you wanted to find a document, you'd probably have to walk over to somebody's desk, get them to maybe email it to you, all the kind of stuff you had to request it. Whereas Slack just pushes you the stuff that you know your colleagues think is useful or like that Slackbot think is, thinks is useful as well. Is there not, though, some jobs that mobile apps are really good at? Or do you think that was really, as you said, that kind of like solution for a very a point in time where connectivity was not as universal as it is now? You know, it, there's definitely use cases for natively, like locally installed apps. Like one is communication tools, of which social networks and messengers are. Like things that you might end up spending like hours a day doing. They're the types of things that maybe, at least today anyway, a native app is useful for. But for most other use cases, like, I really don't see the point. Like, even, like, travel apps, all those kind of things where you're, like, searching for a flight. Like, I don't know why you would need to go through the friction of downloading an app just to do that, whereas you can just do a search on the Internet and it's just instant. Yeah, and a lot of brands are actually killing their apps. I mean, you, you wrote about in your blog post. Uh, Patagonia, is it, I think, is, is one? Yeah, Patagonia is one. Uh, there's a few more, like Burberry as well. I think last year released a, a lot of information about how their mobile e-commerce offering is like increasing their sales overall. The thing they, they failed to mention is they don't really have, uh, they don't actually have a native app either. So there's a lot of retail brands who have already gone down that path. I think we'll see travel go down that path as well. 
And yeah, I think it's, it's becoming more of a thing over time. There's definitely though a feeling I think for some people that they're turning against apps because of the amount of like just feel that they're being tracked and targeted with ads all the time. At least with a browser, you can employ an ad blocker. And I know that was something a lot of people commented on your post. Again, I think for the majority of people, it's not like this conscious thing that they're doing. Like they're not consciously deciding, you know, to delete all the apps off their phone, those kind of things. It's just this gradual realization that to get the information they need. And again, this is all just about information retrieval at the end of the day and, you know, content um, uh, curation and, and, and consumption. I think people are just changing their habits and just doing it in a different way. I don't think people are consciously that much thinking, you know, I don't trust this thing. I think there definitely is an issue before you... If you think about when you visit a URL, you just visit the URL and you don't really worry about too much. Whereas potentially, like if you're going to download an app, you might wonder what might happen to the data, you know, after you've downloaded this thing onto your phone. I'm not too sure a lot of the majority of people really consciously think that way, but it could be like a factor, a small one. And I think like in terms of that sort of trends and the way things are changing, I mean, it's a while since someone has said to me, hey, have you seen this great new app? I mean, like we all spend our time in a small number of, of apps, as you said, the big messengers, big social networks. So, like, is is that maybe just a failure of the app store model as well? That like, you know, discovering new apps or new apps breaking through is is quite difficult. Not like the case it was like maybe three years ago. Again, I think it relates to it's it's not that useful searching across a bunch of stuff that's defined at the OS level. So, um, if you search the app store, you're kind of searching through Apple's lens in the world, if you know what I mean. Whereas, again, like if you search the internet, it's like all of the information in the world, and it's like this standards based thing that's pretty well defined. So definitely there's an element of like discovery there. But I kind of think back in the day, again, because native apps were this way to get more utility from a phone that was offline and less, less people use the Internet, search functionality in the App Store probably had more usefulness then because people were literally searching for stuff to do to get more value in their phone. Whereas today, people don't really search for apps anymore. And I think even just thinking of apps as like a thing on their own is, is kind of pointless too. Like an app is literally just one interface into a service how they get it, they kind of don't really think about too much. But I think, again, naturally, they're just doing it over the web. And I think that's probably what's driving uh, lower installs in the App Store as well. And of course, with the messaging revolution, if, as you said, they don't care, they just want the service. If Uber pops up in Facebook Messenger, when you mention an address in a meeting, people will be just as happy as that as they will be opening the Uber app. Exactly. Yeah, like even better, you don't have to download anything. There's no friction, simpler. Do you think this applies in the world of B2B as much as it does in the consumer world? I mean, we've definitely seen a, a lot of opening up of, of the enterprise, I suppose, compared to the old lockdown world of five, six years ago, a lot, a lot of trends in, in, in that regard. What's your view on, on, on the B2B world? Yeah, it's just the same. Like, if, if, if you, again, I'm probably oversimplifying it, but if it's all about, like, information creation and consumption, the same thing happens in work as it does, like, in your personal life. So, like... In your personal life, you know, you might want to book a flight to go away on holidays, but B2B, you might want to book a flight to do a work trip. And there's other, you know, at home, you might you might want to craft an email to send to your friends or even a Facebook message or whatever it is. Same applies in work too, you know. So we actually have share a lot of the same jobs across our personal lives and our work lives. Like even if you look at like Dropbox, like the reason that Dropbox scaled as a, as a tool is they give it away for free first, so people use it in their personal lives, and then they, it kind of creeped into the enterprise. So I don't think there's, there's much of a, a big difference across both of those worlds. I think the jobs are still the same. And I suppose like one of the big, the big things we've seen in, the, in that world is Slack, which I mentioned already. We now see that like Microsoft is, is going to compete with Slack, which is quite interesting, g- given the scale of the two companies. But clearly, Slack was about sort of bringing that consumer sensibility and like design and like just good product thinking to what was quite a clunky sort of product category. 
yeah, it was kind of a lot of it was about openness as well. Like we're more used to sharing more openly on like Facebook and so on. And kind of like you mentioned earlier on, people are now more comfortable sharing more openly in the work environment too. So yeah, kind of matches the habit. What's the opportunity for developers, I suppose, then? What questions should they ask about their own product in relation to this space? Like what, you know, if, if I'm sitting down now and I, I, I want to start, uh, you know, getting ready for this world, what should I, how should I think about it? Yeah, I still, I still hear developers today, they're out to kind of create something new and create a business and they always start with, oh, I'm thinking about building an app. Yeah. And then it's like, I'm thinking about building an iOS app Yeah, because they've heard that like people who install apps for the Apple App Store spend more money or whatever it is. It's completely the wrong lens. <clears throat> like, I think if you're going to build a brand new product, the first lens you should think through is like, first of all, what's the problem I'm trying to solve? And then what's the service I can provide that, you know, solves that problem? And then after that, you kind of think about the routes in for like your potential customers. And I, I'd almost guarantee that if you kind of think in that way first and not decide, you know, to like build an app, you'll probably end up not building an app at all because you realize you don't need it. So like think through that lens and then also try and think about what are the lightweight, small things that are like, will add small little bits of value for people and start there too. Like, don't go super deep on something. Uh, again, because you probably just end up building this really complex app where <laughs> you, you could actually just have plugged in the service that you're going to build into, like, multiple places at once. Does that involve a bit of giving up control, though, I suppose, that people, maybe developers are not as used to, even though, ironically, people said the App Store was involved giving up control, but, like, we're seeing sort of that ero- erosion for the independent guy. Yeah, uh, and again, like a lot of this is kind of defined by where people are spending their time. So if you think about where people are spending their time, whether it's WhatsApp or Facebook or Slack or whatever it is, the experience that they've designed is very much thoughtful and thought through. So let's say, as an example, you want to open up a bit of functionality in your service through like a card that's embedded in a messenger, like Slack, Facebook, whatever it is. It's okay to give up creative control of how that renders because Facebook have thought about it, you know, Slack have thought about it. Whereas, like, I think, again, like some developers um, and designers in the past might have been so caught up in, like, the design detail of how, like, an interaction should work. You know, if they're going to build the app from scratch, it's okay to give up the creative control to the platform. I'm just going to pause the podcast there for a second to tell you that the Intercom Customer Service Trends Report 2024 is out now. We asked 2,000 plus customer service teams across the globe how they are meeting the challenges and opportunities of 2024. In it, you'll see this year's top five customer service trends plus strategies to meet rising customer expectations. You can find the report at inter.com forward slash 2024 trends. Okay, back to today's episode. You gave a really interesting talk on our world tour earlier this year about how software companies can learn from shopping centers. So uh, can you maybe give us a flavor of that? Like, what are the lessons people can learn from those formative years of retail? Yeah, history is um, usually handy f- for a couple of reasons. Like, one is history is a group of stories. And if you want to try and help people understand complex subjects, usually a relatable story is handy. So, like, the concept of, like, a shopping center being a platform, which, which it is, a, a multi-sided platform, is, is useful. And like, even if you look at like entrepreneurs and, and people like that, they tend to oftentimes study like history, logic, politics, all that kind of stuff, because they want to learn from the way that people behave and, you know, their changing environment and economics and all that kind of stuff. And you can apply that anywhere. Uh, and history is also useful as well because it, it repeats itself. Yeah. <laughs> so if people have made like if people have screwed up in the past, you know, you can always refer to those stories and learn something. So that's why stories are good. So what is the coolest thing about shopping centers that we probably don't know? <laughs> um, yeah, so a lot of people get really confused about software platforms and technology platforms and don't really understand the d- dynamics. And the sort of story I use in that shopping center talk is about basically the company that became Target Corporation. 
And they moved from being like a small department store to actually being a landlord and opening up shopping malls in the US all over the place. And it just changed the dynamics of their business and it changed how they scale. So they basically shared the risk with a bunch of other people. You know, when they're moving into new markets, they partnered up with local retailers. So like that's the partnership part of your platform strategy. So if you compare that story and how they changed to like Facebook in, you know, before they launched Facebook platform, um, by letting other people in and like sharing the success and sharing the risk, everyone kind of grew, you know, so it's typical like normal platform dynamics. And of course, you, you were at Facebook when a lot of that was happening. Like for a company like that, when you're opening up, what is the, the real thing that you think, you know, how do you how do you make that change of mindset? Because I presume it is a change of mindset is, is key to, to doing that. What was kind of like any, any tidbits you can share with us there without uh, giving away trade secrets of, <laughs> of, of how you make that transition, maybe, though, if you're trying to think becoming a platform company? Yeah, I think I think the first thing is just this realization that you can't do everything, right? So like a lot of companies fail because they try and do everything at once and they think they're going to do everything. So the first part of it's just a mindset change, like literally opening up your doors, like being comfortable with people, partnering with you, sharing things with them, like sharing the risk, like investing in people that don't work for your own company, all these kind of things. And I think it just starts there. And again, it's the same thing with like a shopping center where, you know, if you're going to build a shopping center, and your department store is one of like the anchor tenants, you might be worried about the shops that surround you and like you might be worried about them doing a bad job. But that fear will only like slow you down from like just following through and seeing if it happens or not. Mm-hmm. And the way to solve a lot of that stuff is by laying ground rules and, you know, sort of having policies and all those kind of things. And again, the same things apply across both. So, yeah, just a mindset change thing and just being kind of being OK with feeling a bit vulnerable as well, you know. Don't be like not worrying too much about what people might do and be more worried about like how you can reel it in quickly if they do bad things. And staying with history for a minute, she launched our developer program with a blog post which referenced McDonald's and their filet of fish. If I'm not disrupting in and out burger, what can I learn from uh, from McDonald's about software? Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of related to the last point. So, yeah, I gave that talk internally a while ago. And the thing that a lot of people don't really know about McDonald's is that there's three of their products, potentially more like the Big Mac, uh, the Philly of Fish, and the Egg McMuffin. Three of the biggest selling products, but McDonald's Corporation didn't invent them. Like, the franchisees invented them. And the reason that various franchisees invented them was because they had really localized problems that they needed to invent their way out of. So, like, the Philly of Fish, as an example, the franchisee who invented that was on the east coast of the USA in a very deeply, like, Roman Catholic sort of area. And obviously, there's a thing with, you know, if you're a Roman Catholic, you can't eat meat on a Friday. So this guy had basically zero sales on a Friday. He was screwed. And he invented this fillet of fish to kind of solve that problem. The Egg McBuffin was a similar thing where, you know, owning a, a restaurant is very like the airline industry, where if you've got a low-cost airline, you've got loads of planes, you want to keep them in the sky as long as possible because you've got all these fixed costs you want to cover. And if you're a franchisee, you've got your rent, you've got all these kind of fixed costs. So opening in the morning will help offset those and hopefully help you make money. But McDonald's said no breakfast trade no breakfast products so this dude you know invented the egg muffin and the funny thing about those stories is like at the time like the ceo ray Kroc didn't really he, he he they had a rule book and they were like the rules are the rules you can't bring your own products in you can't change anything we're mcdonald's we know everything and what they it took them a couple of years to realize in each case was these guys were solving problems that they could actually where they could roll the solution out all over the u.s and make more money um, and it's a good example of being open to listening to the ecosystem, to your platform ecosystem, to get their ideas and help them refine their ideas for the benefit of everyone. So again, like Platform Dynamics, one of those sort of relatable stories where the benefits of having more people outside of your company focused on you and your success than just you yourself is actually better for everyone. I mentioned there, obviously, the, the developer program that Intercom just launched. You're the uh, senior product manager for developer experience. 
What's Intercom's vision then in terms of, of, of working with third parties and developers in the platform? What are, what are you trying to build? Yeah, we're basically ourselves trying not to build all the things. Uh, so again, like as a company, like we're, we're growing really fast. You know, we've, we've a lot, a lot of customers, like we have over 15,000 customers now. And the more customers that we have, the more like different tools they will use, the different, like they'll be in different verticals, they'll have, have different problems that they want to solve. And we're never, ever going to build all of the things that, you know, solve all of those problems all the time. And we're never going to build all of those integrations all of the time. So what we're doing is just opening up the platform to make it easier for, like, third party developers or partners to plug in and, like, help us solve those problems. And hopefully we help them solve a problem in return, too. And we're doing things like creating, like, discoverability mechanisms for these things and those kind of incentives as well. Okay, so obviously the the sell to developers is pretty clear, but what's the benefit for Intercom customers? So the, the benefit is basically for every dollar that you pay us, hopefully you get more value out of the ecosystem that we're building. So that could be anything from like onboarding. So the process of, you know, getting your data into Intercom or like plugging it into your existing tools. If we can make that as frictionless as possible and like a click instead of writing lines of code, you know, I think we've, we've done our job. And also like from a workflow perspective, you know, if we can make it so that you don't have to have 10 different tabs open at once or, you know, have to do, you know, go through clicking something 10 times to like, and make a simple change. If we can just automate a lot of that with our partners, um, hopefully you can get more value out of Intercom. Okay. And I suppose, Hugh, many of our listeners come from early stage companies. Their product might be still trying to get some traction. If they're looking to integrate with a platform to, to, to kickstart that, what should they be considering to really make that integration a success? Like what are they, the key things you think people should be looking at? Yeah, the, the first thing is just understanding the platform and how or even if it's complementary to what you've built or intending to build. Like a lot of people look at plugging into like a platform or integrating with it just for like this kind of distribution opportunity that's completely the wrong lens like you're not going to build something useful for customers you're highly unlikely to if you kind of just think about distribution as the reason you're doing it so definitely like try and find the small areas where you can integrate and where there's like a bit of lightweight mutual value exchange for you and for your customers as well and then the other thing to do would be try and like get involved so the best ideas in the world are always like sort of versions or sort of mixes of a bunch of other ideas. And the best way to share ideas with anyone is like person to person. So wherever a platform is having like a developer event or any of those kind of things, go meet the people, build up a relationship with them, share your ideas, listen to theirs. And, you know, from that, hopefully you can end up coming up with like brand new, innovative sort of solutions to customer problems. And it doesn't happen overnight, I believe. <laughs> Very true. <laughs> okay. Hugh, listen, thanks for coming in and chatting to us. That's been uh, really, really insightful. Thanks, Ron. You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, visit soundcloud.com slash intercom. If you'd like to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.com. <laughs>